Should be live. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, we're back for another Wednesday uh, afternoon uh, visit with John Clayton and Does God Exist? As, as we uh, mentioned last week, we are uh, now toward the last, oh, the last five or six, seven uh, lessons of his uh, total of 36. And we are getting into into some pretty deep stuff. Um, last week, he introduced um, this this idea of uh, the age of things. And um, was that two two ago or just last week? I can't last remember. Week. Last week, the age of things. And this week, um, I'm going to tell you to buckle up. Um, if you haven't uh, gone ahead and gone to the website and listened to this lesson, it is it is interesting. Uh, what he does is he takes us and talks, walks us through um, how he views Genesis one and maybe a couple of verses in Genesis two, and how that overlays onto um, his what science tells him uh, about the age of things and how. Um, the two can be merged, married uh, with a what he would claim would be a relatively logical approach that if we have and I've always had this uh, problem in trying to make what science had told me about the age of things. And I didn't believe, you know, all of that. Um, and what the Bible told me um, in Genesis 1 uh, and 2 about creation. And like I say, what he has done in this lesson and in the next lesson, um, I believe he continues the, talking about this particular issue uh, into next lesson, the next lesson also when he goes back to talk about how you know, the age of fossils uh, not only the age of things in general, but specific, specifically the age of fossils, which he is trying to um, make sure that um, the evidence there supports what we find in the Bible. Um, I would be willing to bet that you've never heard his approach. I had never heard his approach. Had you heard his approach um, before encountering this? And uh, I will, I will, uh, I will suspend my thoughts on it, and I will make Chris uh, suspend his thoughts on it until at least we've uh, witnessed uh, the video together, and you've had a chance to see what what Clayton has to say. So, uh, with that said, we'll go ahead and start the Genesis creation, verse by verse. Welcome to the Does God Exist video series, program number 29. We're assuming in this discussion that you have watched the previous several videos on evolution. We've tried to point out the difference between evolution and naturalism. We've tried to point out the difference between the fact of evolution 
and the theories of evolution. Punctuated equilibrium, cladistic taxonomic drift, neo-Darwinism. We've taken a look at the question of time. And we've tried to point out that the Bible really doesn't give us a way of calculating time. The Bible is not a clock. The age of the earth is not a question. There really is no point in getting bogged down with traditions that the 6,000-year tradition of some creationist is not biblical. It's not factual. We're not saying the earth is necessarily old. We're just saying this is not a biblical issue. We've also tried to indicate that we're not talking about the nature of God and how God functions here. We're assuming that God is the God we read about in the Bible. I made the comment in the last presentation, do we believe that Adam had a belly button? Now, at that point, you might not have understood the significance of that, but if Adam was created with a belly button, then God created Adam with the appearance of age. So why couldn't God have created the earth with the fossils already in the ground? with all of the indicators of radiometric dating in place. And what I tried to point out to you was that the Bible portrays God as a God of honesty, integrity. The Bible says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God tempts no man, neither can he be tempted with evil. God doesn't mislead us. And if you take the position that, for instance, Supernova 1987a, was videotaped by God and a visual image sent to the earth so we would think it's millions of light years away when in fact God sent a video 6,000 years ago, that's, that's just not the nature of God. That's inconsistent with God. So we're assuming what you see is what you get. This whole discussion has been predicated on evidence. We have said that science and faith are compatible, they support each other, they reinforce each other. And what we propose to do in the next two presentations is to show you that in the fossil record, in the biblical record. So as you look at this chart, I want you to notice what we're doing here. We have the Genesis account laid out. We have looked at what the key words are in the original language. In the third column, we've talked about what the concept is that is being presented by those key words. And what we want to do then is to say, okay, now what is the evidence that that's true? What's the evidence that that works? There's a couple of things that I think need to be said preliminarily here as we introduce this particular discussion, which is going to be a rather in-depth study. The first point is that for a lot of people, this statement is just plain, too simple. They would much rather see the Bible say something like this. <laughs> you, know, you, you can almost visualize Moses writing this down. You know, yeah, Lord, sure. Mm -hmm. That's not what we expect God to do because God is not just writing this for people living in the 21st century. Do you know how hard this is? How hard it is to write something that's going to make sense to people now and make sense to people 2,000 years from now? 
You know, I uh, was moving not too long ago, and I, I was cleaning out some old stuff, and uh, I came across a term paper I wrote when I was a junior in high school. That's over 50 years ago. And I was, I was going through this paper that I had written in an English class, and in the process of the paper, I had tried to describe the school jock, you know, the guy that was the real athlete and all the girls were tumbling over and so forth and so on. And I described him as the most gay individual I had ever known. Well, <laughs> that, that word gay has acquired a new meaning today. And my point here is that, that words change in meanings. And, and for God to convey to men living at the time of Moses and people living today in a way that both could understand is an incredible challenge. We don't expect the Bible to give us a scientific, complete, thorough explanation of everything that took place. And as a matter of fact, you have to realize that, that this is actually an impossibility. Because realize how many animals have lived on the earth and the history of the earth. And the numbers in the textbooks number 25 million, 26 million, something like that. Let's suppose Genesis 1 took half a verse to describe each of the 26 million different kinds of life that have happened upon this earth. The Bible would so be so big you need a forklift to pick up your Bible. That's not the purpose of the Bible. I think it was Galileo who was quoted as having said that the Bible tells us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. So it's not the purpose of the Bible to give us this kind of detailed information. And that we need to understand as we start this discussion. The other point that needs to be made is a point about translations. And let me demonstrate this to you by a, a Spanish example. Here we have a Spanish statement. And I don't read Spanish. I don't understand Spanish. Know a little bit of German, know a little bit of English, but I'm not very good in Spanish. So I, I don't know what this phrase means. So I look it up, literally look it up in a Spanish-English dictionary. And what I find is that those three words literally mean John has cold. Well, I've got a problem. Does that mean John is cold, temperature-wise? Or does it mean I'm cough, I'm sneezing, I'm sick? Now, I suspect there are people sitting with you, perhaps, that are watching this and they're saying, well, that's easy. It means John is cold. Now, how do you know that? How do you know that? Somebody says, well, I took Spanish in high school. <laughs> or, I, or that's my language. The point is, you know that how the culture interprets the phrase means John is cold. Now, that can be much more complicated than that simple example. Let me give you another example. Here's another Spanish phrase. And when I look up the words, it literally means John me falls well fat. Is that a comment about my waistline? That might be justified, but is that what this is? <laughs> the answer is no, of course not. What, is, what it's saying is, I, I don't like this guy very much. How would you know that? You have to know the culture. You have to know how the people that know the language and use the language would have interpreted that information. When somebody says, I take the Bible literally, my immediate question is, what do you mean by that? You mean you, you take the, the words of the King James 
translation written in 1611 and interpret that in the way that modern people have looked at those words and that's what you forced upon the Bible? That, that's not taking the Bible literally. To take the Bible literally, you have to look at who wrote it, who they wrote it to, why they wrote it, and what the people of the time would have understood it to say. That's critical to understanding the message being conveyed. And what has happened with most creationists is they simply don't take the Bible literally. They take what their denomination has taught. And they use that interpretation as taught by their theologians, by their preachers, as what the Bible actually says. I don't represent a denomination in these presentations. I'm looking at what the language says. One of the interesting things is that we run into a very interesting situation right away when we go back to the original language and start looking at what the Bible says. Now, in the very first presentation in this series, we looked at the Genesis 1-1 statement of creation. Reshith Elohim Shekim What does that mean? Well, here's a chart that shows you what it means. Reshith says there was a beginning. How do we know that that's what it's trying to convey? Because we look at all the uses of that word, and there's 18 of them in the Old Testament, and we look at how it's used. In all 18 cases, well, 17 plus Genesis 1.1, it means something that didn't exist before. We go to the people who are the scholars, and we read what they say, and they say, well, this means it, it, it's talking about something that is initiated, something that is started. So in the beginning, is a statement of scientific truth. And we looked at the evidence of that in the second presentation and saw there is a mountain of scientific evidence to support the fact that there was a beginning. The word Elohim, we've discussed that when we were talking about the nature of God and how we are in God's image. Again, it's the original language that we're concerned about. In this discussion, it's the third word that I want to call to your attention. The Hebrew word used here is bara, B-A-R-A. That word is used 42 times in the Old Testament. 41 of those times, it refers to something that had never existed before. I suggest to you in Genesis 1.1, it also refers to something that didn't exist before, but in all 42 cases, it is something that only God can do. The word bara is never used in reference to something a human can do. So what is being said is that God created a process unique to God. And we talked about all of the different theories of origins of matter in discussion. But this subject, what bara means, is going to come up again today in this discussion. Because what we're talking about here is not just things like matter and space and time, but we're also talking about life. So the Hebrew word bara is used in reference to something that didn't exist before. And, and once again, what we need to do is we need to look at how the people who know the language and who speak the language understand the word. Here is a statement that is produced from the Jewish Publication Society, the people who know their language and use their language on a daily basis. And notice the statement. The Hebrew bara is used in the Bible exclusively of divine creativity. That's the way the word is used, never in reference to something a human can do. I and mean, we could give you many quotations from people who know the language that indicate the use of the word bara. 
Now, there's another word, and that is the Hebrew word asah. These words are both used in the first chapter of Genesis, and asah is used not necessarily just in reference to something that God can do, but also in reference to things that man can do. I've called it indirect making. Sometimes people talk about God's providence. The indication is that God did not zap this thing into existence, but he used a natural process. This is not a miracle. This is a natural process that produced the thing that we see. And that word is used extensively in Genesis as well. So we have fiat creation, something that is a miraculous act of God. We have indirect making. Now, you want to argue? Hey, we can have a good argument as long as we don't take ourselves seriously. We could argue, for instance, about how the Grand Canyon got there. We have a, a DVD in our series, which you can borrow if you'd like, on the Grand Canyon. We've taken people down the Colorado River on boat trips. We've walked into the canyon many, many, many times. And I have an idea about how the canyon was produced, at least some of the factors that were involved in the production of the canyon. Did God zap the canyon into existence, a miraculous act? Or did he use a natural process or several processes to produce the canyon as we see it? Now, I have an opinion upon that. My opinion is based upon my training as a geologist. My opinion is based upon having been in the canyon many, many, many times. You might have a different opinion. That's fine. We can have a good time arguing the point as long as we don't take ourselves seriously. But that's a matter of dispute. How did oil get in the ground? How did coal get in the ground? Did God zap the oil into the ground? Or did he establish a natural process that culminated in the production of oil? I have seen situations where a microscopic animal called a diatom, when it was alive, produced a drop of essentially crude oil in its body as it lived. When it died, the crude oil with pressure would separate, leaving behind a skeletal structure, and we have a name for that. We call it diatomaceous earth. So when I'm doing field work in geology, if I find diatomaceous earth, I have a suspicion that there is oil somewhere in the vicinity. This is based upon my experience. This is based upon my training. I have an opinion about how oil has been produced. Not everybody shares that opinion. There might be more than one method. The point here is that you have some things that God has not told us what was done. And we can argue about that. In the other cases, if God says it, that settles it. If you're a believer in God and if you follow the Bible. So it's important to understand the distinction in these two terms. Let me show you how critical this gets in some areas. In Genesis 1 and verse 27, the Bible says, so God created, that's barah, man in his own image. In the image of God created he them, male and female created he them, and called their name Adam. Barah. And yet, if you turn over to Genesis 2 and verse 7, the passage says, and God formed man of the dust of the earth. The Hebrew word used here is not barah. Actually, the word that is used here is a word that is used in reference to something a potter would do in molding or shaping something. 
So somebody says, well, the words mean the same thing then, because obviously it's talking about man in both cases. And the answer is no, that's not obvious. When you are looking at this particular passage, it's very obvious he's talking about man's body. God formed man. He took the necessary materials from the dust of the earth and created the physical body in which I dwell. In this passage, in verse 27, he's talking about man's spiritual qualities. And we talked about the nature of man and what it really is that defines man. So distinguishing between bara and asa is extremely important. If God is talking to the other components of the Godhead, he's going to use asa. If he's describing to us something that is accomplished by natural process, he's going to use asa, or some other word that refers to perhaps something an artist would do. But if he's talking about a miraculous act on the part of God, the creation of time, the creation of space, the creation of life, and he's going to refer to a word that describes uniquely what God does. Now, you don't have to be a Hebrew scholar to understand this, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I've never had a course in this. I've never I've studied under some very knowledgeable people who are advanced degree people who have PhDs in Hebrew. But So I'm pretty sure about my understandings here, but I'm no scholar. Let me show you how on a very simple level you can understand this. Get a concordance. Now, I'm going to show you Young's analytical concordance here because I think it's the easiest one to use, but you can use Strong's or Cruden's or some other concordance. It doesn't matter. And you can look up the words. Now, for example, look at this. This is, in Young's analytical concordance, the word for create, to create, to form bara. What I want you to notice here is that the word is used extensively in Genesis. Not all the time, but it's used extensively. And it tells you all of those 42 uses that I mentioned earlier. Now, you can also look up the word to make, to form, asa. And you can look at the uses here. Now, let me call your attention to something. This word is also used extensively in the Genesis account in chapter 1. So what's our conclusion? That God has both created and made the things that we see. It is so critical if we're going to take the Bible literally that we pay attention, careful attention, to the words that are used to describe the processes of God. And in this particular case, those two words make all the difference in the world as to how we understand what the biblical record has to say. So in the case of Asa, we see not only uses in reference to things that God does, but also uses in reference to things that man does make war, make a feast, make me laugh. Those aren't miracles, are they? Those are things we can do. If there's any doubt in your mind about this, let me call your attention to the statement that is made in the Genesis account when all of this stuff is completed. In Genesis 2 and in verse 3, after the creation week is accomplished, the Bible says, and God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in that he rested from all the work which God created, Barah, and made, Asa. The Bible says God did both. Now, some of you may be saying at this point, well, aren't you sort of in overkill here? I mean, after all, you've spent a huge amount of time talking about created and made. This is so critical to understanding the basic concepts of the Genesis account.
So now let's start through the Bible, verse by verse by verse, and let's see what the record actually says. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created Barah, the heaven and the earth. Now, let me point out to you here. He created. This is not a statement of summary. This is a statement of history. God created. doesn't say in the next 31 verses, I'm going to tell you precisely and exactly everything God said and did. It indicates a historical event. And this goes on with a series of events. After talking about event number one, the next statement is made, and, and this is untimed and undated, is that the process involved action on God's part. Back when we studied Proverbs 8 earlier and we talked about why it is valid to deal with apologetics, one of the things I tried to point out to you is that the description of the process of God is an active wisdom process. The heaven, the Hebrew word that is used here, refers to heaved up things. Look at Young's Analytical Concordance. Heaved up things. I had a rabbi who told me one time, the word sort of is like sticking your hand in the sand and going like that. The heaved up things. And the word earth here is the Hebrew word eretz, used in reference to a functional earth. This is an event. The earth was, or some translations say, became without form and void. Something happened. There was a change, historical event. The next thing that happens is the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. That's another event. The next thing is God said, let there be light. And God divided the light from the darkness. Now, let's go back to verse 1. If you're dealing with the question that God created the heaven and the earth, the heaven is everything up there. Everything up there. That means the sun and the moon and the stars and the galaxies. And somebody says, now, wait, 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 wait. The, the, the sun and the moon and the stars are, are in verses 14 through 19. No, they're not. Now, look carefully at how this is used. The Hebrew word barah, something unique to God, is done in verse 1. And the Hebrew word heaven includes everything up there. So Genesis 1-1 is saying God created everything up there and he created everything down here. God created everything. That, that's the simple message. But everything up there is all the things that are in space, the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies. In verses 14 through 19, the word that is used is the word asa, not the word bara. So not only is the, the term used in that reference, but throughout the rest of the Bible, the description of the process that produced everything up there is used with the Hebrew word natah, which means to stretch out. The expanding universe, the fit, is absolutely perfect. But God made two great lights. He didn't create two great lights. He, he made two great lights. The objects are created in verse 1. The light from the objects reaches the earth in verse 3. But you could not establish signs, seasons, days, or years until verses 14 through 19. Now, this isn't my opinion. This is what it says. Look at verse 14. God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven. What purpose, Lord? To divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years 
the chronometers of man were established. They are created in verse 1, but you cannot use them to establish signs, seasons, days, or years until verses 14 through 19. That is not my opinion. That is what it says. Now, I want to move from a thus saith the Lord to a thus guesseth John Clayton, okay? I want to tell you a story to try and make a point. Many years ago, I was doing a lectureship in California in August. And I finished the lectureship, and it was time to go home. And I had to get back to start school. Everybody said to me, John, don't try to drive across the Mojave Desert in August in the daytime. It's too hot. But I'm tough. I can do it. So I loaded up my three kids and my wife and two cats in a black, unair-conditioned station wagon, pulling a pop-up camper, and started across the Mojave. Yeah, I know. It was stupid, stupid, stupid. And you know what happened. You know, by noon it's 115 in the shade. I had to turn on the heater to keep the car from overheating. My wife has not spoken to me in 110 miles. The children will not even look in the rearview mirror. And I looked up in front of the car, and here is a thunderstorm. Oh, yeah. Great big billowing clouds, sheets of rain coming down. And I thought, oh, oh this is wonderful. It's going to cool off. Everything's going to be fine. I'm saying to the family, hey, look, it's going to rain. Everything's going to get cool. And the kids finally come up over the bay. Hey, yeah, look at the rain. Yay, raw. We got under that stupid thunderstorm, and not one drop of water was hitting the ground. It was so hot that when the rain fell, it took one look at that desert floor and said, no, I'm not going down there. And it turned around and went right straight back up. And we didn't see any rain. Is there anything in the Bible that indicates that it didn't rain early in the earth's history? Yeah, as a matter of fact, look at Genesis 2 and verse 5. Every plant of the field before it was in the earth, so before there were plants, and every herb of the field before it grew. So there's no herbs. We'll talk about what that means later on. Why not? For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. Before there was man. In the prehistory of the earth, there was no rain. It was too hot. What does the fossil record show? What do we understand about the way in which the earth functions? Until the temperature dropped below 100 degrees Celsius, there was no possibility of rain. Until there were condensation nuclei, there was no possibility of rain. Until there was adequate water vapor, there was no possibility of rain. Every shred of evidence we have supports the concept that there was no rain. If the water is not falling into oceans and lakes and rivers, where is it? It's up there. It's in the sky. It's in the clouds. So you cannot sit on the earth and look at the sun and say, here comes the sun. It's the beginning of the day. You could not establish signs, seasons, days, or years. Now, th this is just my opinion. I just see the fit. And the important thing about the fit is that here we have a situation where the sequence of events are given. The sequence is given. But in the process of the sequence, lots of things are explained. I have seen people turn inside out trying to explain where the light in verse 3 came from. 
But if the light in verse 3 was a product of the creation, then you've got light, but you couldn't see the sun, the moon, and the stars because of the cloud cover. So the light came from the sun and the moon and the stars, which were created in verse 1, but the light did not reach the earth, at least in recognizable form, until verse 3. And you could not establish signs, seasons, days, and years until the clouds broke and until it was possible to establish these quantities. So verse 14 is simply describing a change in the earth's condition that allowed the chronometers of man to be established. Now, I want to emphasize here that in this sequence that we're looking at, the sequence is the key word, the sequence. So what I would like to do in our next presentation is to look at this sequence in depth from the point where we are now on, recognizing that the first verse is the creation verse, and that processes after that verse are very frequently going to involve the making of things, just like we have talked about in connection with signs, seasons, days, or years. So I hope you continue this discussion by looking at the next presentation. So I hope you continue this discussion. Right. Good. Yeah. That's you. We're on. Yeah. Okay. There we are in a little bit bigger picture. There is um, a lag, as you have noticed, um, between uh, our coming and going on here. It's because we are monitoring this not from uh, Chris's computer where it is being played. We are monitoring it from his iPad, which there is some lag time after, probably what, 10 seconds, five, 10 Somewhat, seconds, yeah. something like that. So sometimes when uh, we are back and you see us back and we don't act like we're back, <laughs> uh, that that's why. Um, okay. I asked Chris a while ago, I said, have you ever known something or thought you were really right about something and found out later you were wrong. Um, he said oh, uh, <laughs> rather facetiously, um, but all of us have been that way. Uh, there, are, there are things that occur in this life uh, where uh, our memory is trying to serve us adequately. Um, my wife just asked me this morning about something that that she's reading that I that I have written, and and she said something about uh, you know, this this particular section. And I said, no, that comes a little bit later. And she says, no, I think so. I've, I've been I've been reading it, and I go, oh, well, okay. Um, and then she she pointed it out, and I said, you're absolutely right. And I was pretty sure that 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 I that I was right. So my point. And starting out that way um, is that I also asked Chris a while ago, I said, uh, have you ever heard Clayton's approach that he is presenting here? And Chris said, no. And I said, neither had I until um, I had until I got to uh, this section in the videos the first time uh, that I listened to them. I think I was listening to them in my car as I drove to Florida one time. Um, it wasn't. I don't think it was in his original group of around somewhere around 20. Um, but if it was, it wasn't as well developed, at least um, in in uh, Clayton's presentation as he has it here um, as it was then. Um, so 
my approach to this and i'll let i'll let chris uh, take over in just a minute because he's got some notes and things he uh, wants to talk about um uh, i'm my approach is this i have had um issues with what science has told me about the age of the earth and um i didn't see that represented in scripture Yet they were presenting, you know, dinosaur fossils to me and and um, saying in 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 scientific terms how long it takes to fossilize something, uh, turn it in from regular material into stone. And um, there was just some some dis disjunction there, uh, some uh, cognitive dissonance. And I never really. Uh, was able to reconcile that. And so I would, when people would ask me, well, you believe the Bible? What about the dinosaurs? There's no dinosaurs in the Bible. And I would say, you know, that's one of the things that I really don't, I can't, I can't say. I know what the Bible says. I know what, uh, what I think it teaches. Um, but um, I'm not sure exactly where the dinosaurs fit in. Well, Clayton has tried to do that for us, and he'll continue to try to do that for us uh, next <coughs> week with the fossil uh, record and the age of fossils next week. Um, and so my approach to this is I don't know. Clayton appears to know, says he knows, and says and feels that he is not doing an injustice to the Bible uh, with his, the way he presents uh, this marriage between science and the Bible. Um, Chris has some other ideas. Other people, if you look up, you know, uh, refuting John Clayton or something like that uh, on the internet, if you Google that, you'll you'll have plenty of people who disagree with him, and they'll even get down to individual points and so forth. I don't know the answer. I'm I'm not knowledgeable enough. And I don't have enough time and energy to devote to trying to figure it out. If I don't figure it out before I die, I don't think it's going to handicap me. If I adopt some uh, impression or theory or version of how all this fits together and I'm wrong, um, I'm not going to try to convince someone of that. I might share my opinion, but God's not going to hold that against me. I'm convinced in the day of judgment because I was wrong about merging science and the Bible. It's outside my field of expertise. Um, and as we said, as Clayton just said a while ago, we can talk about these things. We can disagree on these things as long as we don't take ourselves too seriously. This is not a do or die situation, in my opinion. It doesn't matter who wins the argument. Um, it may be that we can't win the argument. The only way you win the argument is you convince the other person to come over to your side. Clayton is pretty convinced <laughs> that he's right. Yeah. Others are pretty convinced that they are right. And uh, I was talking with a couple of, of friends uh, just last night, and um, we were talking about uh, religion. And uh, 
the one who is uh, a religious um, said, you know, why are we even talking about this? It's my opinion against your opinion, and I'm not going to convince you and you're not going to convince me. And what he was looking past was there was some truth, absolute truth to the issue. And it had to do with abortion, about life. And I said, it can't just be an opinion when there's something seriously truthful about life. So in this case, however, I don't know that we could ever um, rectify or come to an agreement uh, about this. Clayton makes his arguments from a a scientific background, um, a rather studied approach over the years uh, on his part and some allusions to experts in the field of the Hebrew language. That said, there are some holes, questions that people might have, and then with that, I'll let Chris talk a little while about maybe some of those and what his thoughts and opinions are on what we've heard so far. And let me just say this. All of us need to suspend our uh, acceptance or denial of Clayton until we've heard him out totally. Um, And if next week um, he uh, begins to, um, you know, call Satan from hell uh, to (laughs) to reign on this earth or something like that, we'll stop this series. Uh, But until then, um, I, I believe that we ought to hear him out because his lessons, as you have seen, are sequential. They build upon one another, and he is making a case in the best way he feels he is able to, and that's by presenting pieces of uh, his uh, presentation over time. All right. Here's let me, uh, Chris. Let me poke some of the ho- those holes Rick was talking about uh, in, uh, in Clayton's argument. Uh, let's see. He says that uh, this are his definitions for uh, for bara and asa. So bara means to create out of nothing, is what he says, and asa means it's a process that's used to create. So is that uh, biblical? Well, to figure out whether it's biblical or not, we got to go back to um, the Bible and look how this word, these words are used, right? Um, so if you go back and you grab your Bible, turn to, uh, let's just start in Genesis 1. That's the easiest spot for me to start, I think. Genesis 1, verse 31. And look for the word made or create here. Genesis 1, 31, he says, And God saw everything that he had made. There it is. There's a saw. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So were the things that God had barad not good? Like, just stop and think about it for a second. The things that he has saw, the things that he made out of a process where he says very good, but the things that he barad, he doesn't even mention. My overall point was showing you that this verse and the other verses that we're going to go to in just a second in Isaiah, or I think, again, I'm not a Hebrew scholar either, um, but I've gone back and I've done a little bit of the research on this, on these words. Well, the conclusion that I'm coming to is there's not enough daylight between Barah and Asa to be able to define them distinctly. 
if that makes sense. Um, I don't know that you can say that bara is always uh, out of nothing, creation out of nothing, and asa is always a process. I don't think that's the case, as a matter of fact, and I think I can prove that. Uh, if you turn over to Isaiah chapter 41, Isaiah is going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, Isaiah 41, 19 and 20. So Clayton says that God uses some evolutionary technique to bring about the vegetation, right? God uh, assaulted it. He made it. Uh, and he's, he's talking about some sort of process. I, I don't know exactly um, the process that he thinks that, 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 that was there, whether God like planted squash seeds down the ground and waited for them to sprout up. And I don't know that, I don't know all the particulars there, but when he says uh, in Genesis 1 uh, that God assad the plants, Clayton says, well, that's a process. You know, that's not miraculous. He didn't just say, boom, there's our, how's he say it? Pow. Zap. 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 There's yeah. a squash plant. Um, Clayton doesn't think that. He, he says, well, there's a distinction here between bara, zap, there's a squash plant, and assad there's a process that grows up the squash plant. The only thing I would, I would, I would interject here is, and you and I talked about this a while ago, um, where it says he made Adam. And that's one of the mm -hmm. examples that Clayton uses there. Uh, he created the heavens and the earth, something out of nothing. Adam, he formed from the dust of the earth. He made. And so uh, the word there is something that you know, is commonly used in the Bible for things that man can do. He makes war. He makes people laugh. He, you know, those, those types of things. Um, but the pro and he he said something about the, the notion of providence. I'm not going to get into all of that. But he said something about using natural processes or natural things to uh, affect the rest of his creation. And so my guess would be my strong impression is is that god was making adam whether he was making him out of nothing or out of something god was still creating god was still doing something supernaturally to uh this earth to make this earth transform into this man um so uh that could be the case would that not work for his use of asa there for the vegetation see i don't think it would here's why because <coughs> he's saying in Genesis 1 that he assad, that the process has started now for vegetation. But in Isaiah 41, 19 through 20, okay. he says that he barad the vegetation. Okay. So we're, we're talking about two, in Clayton's mind, two distinctly different concepts. On this hand, <laughs> on this hand you've got uh, barad. He created it out of nothing. There was nothing there, and bam, there's a squash plant. This is difficult. And then, <laughs> so you got Bara over here and a saw over here. A saw is a process. Bara is, ex, you know, out of nothing creation. Which, well, which one is it? Was vegetation Bara? Was it out, created out of nothing, or was it Assad? Did it have a process? Well, the Bible says both. And so, it seems to me that there's a hole in Clayton's definition uh, of versus bra of bra versus a saw. I don't think you can separate these two words. I think they're used interchangeably. Let me give you one more example. Uh, let me, we'll, we'll go ahead and read. If you don't have your Bible open, it's Isaiah 41, 19 through 20. Just let me show you this real quick. 
I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know, <clears throat> may consider and understand together. So he's talking about the vegetation, right? The trees and all that kind of stuff. That the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has, what's your translation say? Created bara is the word there. Um, and so if you want to go back and do some some research here, you can go back and you can look at um, blueletterbible.com and it will show you, uh, you, all you have to do is type in, where am I at? Isaiah 41. I oh, Isaiah wrong. That's brilliant. Isaiah 41. Uh, and uh, and just scroll down to you get to verse 20 where we are saying that the our, our word bara is. And there you see it right there in that second line. <laughs> no, that's Hebrew and we don't we don't understand that. But so, what he's going to do is show you where it says so the, the it word is. itself, the real word. Bara, uh, see right there is the English translation. It's not a, a bad translation. That's the word that he's using that he pulls from. Is it not showing up on the screen? Huh? I don't know. Oh, you didn't click on it. Oh well, that's you dumb. Sorry, it. guys. That's all. Um, don't know why. I don't know. We'll have to. Just talk it out. Yeah, your point. Your point it there is that the uh, Isaiah says created, and yeah. he's talking about the plants that that, that earlier uh, Clayton is going to say were barad. Yeah, were uh, created out of nothing. Created well, out he, of nothing. Clayton's going to say in Genesis one that they were a sod, that there was a process there. Okay, that they were made. And here, and here says, in, in Isaiah, Isaiah says, well, they were barad. They were right. created out of nothing. He does the exact same thing again in, in uh, Isaiah forty five. Um, in relation to, um, to see, I think it's the heavens, Isaiah 45, verse 18. Uh, he says, for thus says the Lord who created, there's our word Barah, who created the heavens. He's God who formed, there's our word Barah, the earth, or sorry, who formed, that's the word I saw, the earth and made it, he established it. Uh, so if you go back and you look at the Genesis account, Genesis says that God barad the heavens. No, no. Here it says, Gen <laughs> this is confusing, isn't it? Here in Isaiah 45, 18, he, God says that he barad the heavens. But in Genesis 1, 7, it says that he asad the heavens. And in uh, here in Isaiah 45, 18, he says he asad the earth. But in Genesis 1, 1, it says he barad the earth. So, it's a it's a hole, you know. You, there's no way around it. These words seem to be used interchangeably, and so the distinction that Clayton's trying to make here with well, bara is creation out of nothing, and asa is always a process. Uh, it's not it's not factual, at least from the rest of Scripture. So what I told Chris is, I said, do what I did. Write Clayton an email and say. Here is something that maybe you've encountered, maybe not. Maybe someone has said to you, what is your answer? How have you answered this with other people? Because to me, it appears there are inconsistencies. And uh, when I wrote him, and I can't remember, I, I told him we were going to be using this. Oh, and I was asking asking um, about, I think, the, the these questions or, or something. And, and so he wrote right back and, and was very, uh, very cordial and very prompt. Um, so. Uh, I would say anytime you have any kind of question, 
about any of the things that he has to say. Uh, his information is on the website, uh, contact information, and um, I'm sure that he would welcome uh, a question. So uh, when uh, things come up, like what Chris has, has just pointed out, that the appearance is that Barah and Asa are not so distinct because at least from this reading, it appears that they uh, tend to be, uh, at least at times, uh, interchangeable. Um, if you're going to make a case about that and make that your foundation for how things worked in Genesis 1 as things progressed through um, the various steps of creation, then, uh, there's, there, like Chris says, there's a hole in your argument uh, from, from the very beginning. And I'm, I'm not saying I agree with Chris. I don't know. Uh, I'm, <laughs> but there, it sounds plausible, obviously. Um, but I would like to hear what uh, Clayton has to say on that. So uh, Chris is taking notes. And uh, at what by the time we get done with this, unless uh, Clayton commits some grand heresy next week and we end this uh, group of lessons all together, which I don't think will take place, um, then uh, maybe maybe he and I'll put together a, a list of these and shoot them to him or call him up and talk with him. Um, Mr. Clayton is is very responsive and believes very firmly and strongly in what what he finds to be, as he says, truth. We've got a couple minutes left. Let me take you back to Genesis 1 real quick, verse 14. Uh, this, this is what it says. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. So Clayton says that uh, you can't tell how much time passed in between Genesis 1-1 in Genesis 1.14, because there's no way to tell time, right? So it kind of leaves room for his, I haven't heard him say it, but I'm assuming <coughs> he believes in thousands, at least thousands, probably millions of years. And he kind of needs that time to be able to work out some of these processes um, that he's been talking about. But there's another pretty glaring hole in his argument, at least I think there is, here in verse 14. Because there is time. Go back and look at, uh, was it verse 5? Um, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So God seems to think that you can tell time because he says, well, this is evening and this is morning one day, right? Now, go back through and do your homework on this stuff because he uses evening and morning repeatedly in scripture. Uh, it's almost 200 times each and that he uses these words and guess what they mean every single time they're always like you would think of as evening and morning you know like when the sun's close to setting it's evening when the sun rises it's morning so a quick thought behind all this if god can't communicate to us in a way that we understand why did he write you know like if if there's not if there's no way to tell time, if these words morning and evening mean something other than what we assume that they mean and the way that he uses them in literally the rest of Scripture, why did he write them? Um, if they're nonsense words, if they mean something other than they mean every other time in Scripture, why, why write it here? It doesn't make sense. Second thing is, 
this word day at the end of verse five, that was the first day, the morning, the evening and the morning. That was the first day. He uses that word again a couple hundred times in scripture, or maybe several thousand times in scripture. Actually, I think it's over 2000 times that time. Um, but this word means like you would think of it as a day, a, a literal 24 hour period. And if you go back through and you look at Exodus chapter 20, um, what is it? Exodus 20. Verses 10 and 11, he uses this word here. And it's just kind of a an easy word to be able to pick out, an easy passage to be able to pick out this word. So Exodus 20, 10 through 11, he says, But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, there's our word days, the Lord, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in it, and then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So you can't work on the seventh day. That was Saturday for them. You can't work. No worky on the seventh day. So if that is an age or an eon or however Clayton would, would have us to think about these, this, what he would think of as the days uh, of creation. I, I think they're literal 24 hour periods. I think scripture teaches that. I'm, I don't think that he thinks that. Um, so whatever period of time that he would put on that, uh, that word day um, is the exact same amount of time that you would have to not work. So if it's a thousand years, you don't work for a thousand years. If it's a billion years, you don't work for a billion years. Um, which is, I mean, obviously on on its face, just kind of kind of silly. But it's a strong argument argument because he uses the exact same word that he uses in Genesis one when he says that's the first day. He says it's it's the sixth of the seventh day here. Uh, so he's either talking about a literal twenty literal twenty four hour period, or he's talking about a concept that is incommunicable to us and nonsensical to us. Or he will explain himself in future um, episodes. Here's hoping. Here's hoping. <laughs> and let's hope. Let's hope he at least tries. And yeah. if not, we'll get an answer from yeah. him uh, one way or the other. I'll get back with you next week. I'll, I'll email him this week, and, and I'll tell you what he says. Any other points before we close? I think that's all I got. All right. We're uh, up uh, against a hard break, as they say, <laughs> in TV. And so... Um, Take this, and like we say, uh, it's now a record. Um, you will post it and uh, look at it again, see what he has to say, and then we'll look at see see what he has to say next week. And I can't remember what his third one of this four is, uh, the title. I just looked ahead to the next one, uh, and the next one is uh, the age of fossils, uh, the fossil sequence, and the Bible record. He's going to try to walk us through. Uh, based on on the questions I was just looking at there, the creation, the steps of creation, what was created when, and show, if I'm not wrong, that the fossil record in layers matches that. I may be wrong on that regard, but uh, but I think that's what his his point is going to be, and that's why he believes that we can merge that fossil sequence and the biblical record without straining too much. So we'll see if he does that for us. All for this week. See you guys. See you. Bye.